Go three books over. If you get to John, you went too far. If you need a way to remember the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John went to bed with their britches on. That's the way I learned it in vacation Bible school. And I've never forgot it since I was seven years old. <laughs> Luke 22, verses 31 through 32. It says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. You want to put your Bibles down? Let's pray. Lord God, again, we thank you for this opportunity tonight, God, to bring you glory, because it's all about you, Jesus. Everything we do, everything we say, it's to bring you glory. And so, God, I ask that you bless the word as it goes forth tonight, God. Let it strengthen us and build our faith. We pray this all in Jesus' name, and the church says, amen. You may be seated, and handouts will be coming around. Thank you, Sister Becky. <laughs> Nearly uh, 50 years ago, on October 30th, 1974, Muhammad Ali and George Foreman squared off in the boxing ring in Zaire. Ali had dubbed it. That's the other one. Who said that? Pastor. The rumble in the jungle. That was another fight. Foreman was heavily favored and was considered to be the hardest puncher in heavyweight history. Foreman was confident that he could finish off Ali pretty quick. And when he entered the ring, he intended to do all in his power to squash him. Did anybody watch this? See clips of it? Black and white? Ali, however, did something in that fight that no other fighter had ever tried before. In a technique he called the rope-a-dope, Muhammad Ali held up his hands against his face and leaned back against the ropes, allowing Foreman to punch away at him for eight rounds. The strongest boxer in the history of the sport beat on Ali until he could punch no more. And when the right moment came, Ali bounced off the ropes and knocked out Foreman, sending him into retirement. George Foreman believed in himself. He was a confident boxer who delivered the hardest, most powerful blows of any boxer who has ever fought in the ring. But he lost. And not only did he lose, it was a loss that sent him into retirement. 2,000 years ago, there was another confident man, a fighter, a man who feared nothing and no one. 
If there was a conflict, you could count on him being there, especially if the conflict endangered his friends, and especially if that friend happened to be Jesus. His name was Peter, Petros. People of that day would have called him Rocky. Peter the Rock, Rocky. I had a little smiley face. It's now a sad face. <laughs> I tried. He was loyal. He was courageous and strong. This brute of a man, though, was going to learn a life-changing lesson on the threshing floor of life. And so I want to come to you tonight from this thought, the master of the wind, the master of the wind. The threshing floor was a common sight in the Middle East. In fact, it was an integral part of the agricultural process. Grain was never ready for market until it first passed through the threshing floor. It was on the threshing floor that the good was on your worksheets right away. Get your pens ready. We're going to work tonight. It was on the threshing floor that the good was separated from the bad. The wheat was distinguished from the chaff on the threshing floor. So the process went something like this. First, the stalks of grain were spread on the flat stone threshing floor, and then a heavy sled of board and stone would be pulled over that wheat by a team of oxen. The, this process of threshing would separate the heads of the grain from the stalks. And after this was done, the threshing floor would be littered with this mixture of grain and chaff. And the good, valuable, and usable grain was generally what you wanted in the end. And the rest of it was worthless, and it simply diminished the value of the whole harvest. But it was the next step in the process that helped separate the valuable from the worthless. The harvester would stand in the threshing floor, and with a shovel, he'd begin to toss the broken and buried stalks up into the air. And as it rose in the air, the wind would blow across the threshing floor and would catch the lighter chaff and blow it off to the side, while the heavier grain would fall back down to the earth at the feet of the harvester. The entire process required wind. And the threshing floors were established where the breeze was most likely to blow. These threshing floors became highly valuable locations. They were well known and often used as meeting places or landmarks because everyone knew where the threshing floor was. And because of this everyday process of threshing floor and along with this idea of separation and distinction between wheat and chaff, it quickly became frequently used biblical symbol or metaphor in scripture. And I want to point out a few of those to you tonight. In Genesis 22 and 2, God tests Abraham's faith. He tells him to take his only son, his promised son, along with everything he needs to offer a sacrifice and set out on a journey to a mountain that God would show him. God leads Abraham on a three-day trek to a mountain called, on your worksheet, you guys may have already filled it in, Moriah. And there on the heights of Mount Moriah, at a flat place on the side of a mountain, 
Abraham built an altar unto God upon which he would offer his son. And just before Abraham began the sacrifice, God's hand intervenes and spares the life of Isaac, but not until the faith of Abraham was tested. This spot on the side of a mountain called Moriah was where the winds on your worksheet, the winds of trial and testing, blew through Abraham's life. That's going to be a common theme through this lesson. The winds of trial and testing blew through Abraham's life. And it would be at this spot that the winds of trial and testing would blow for generations to come. Now, it's interesting, the last place in Genesis, in Genesis 50, which is the very last chapter of Genesis, threshing floors are mentioned again. Um, before you go to verse 10, hold off, I'll tell you when to go up there, because I want to put some context into this. Um, Jacob has just died in Egypt, um, and Joseph, um, they've mourned for 70 days, and now... Jacob has asked before he died to be buried in Canaan. And so they've mourned 70 days in Egypt. And now Joseph goes to Pharaoh and he says, I want to take my dad to Canaan and bury him there. That was his final request. And Pharaoh says, okay, that's fine. And uh, so scripture tells us that there is this huge procession of people that head to Canaan. It is the Hebrews that go up there with Joseph. It is portions of the Egyptian army. It's elders that are part of the most important families in Pharaoh. I mean, it is a lot of people that are heading up. And the Bible says they get beyond the Jordan River, and they come to a place. And now you can throw that up there, Peter. It says, and they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan. And there they mourned with a great and very sore lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. So they're at this place, at this threshing floor, and then suddenly the Canaanites, the Ishmaelites, the Edomites, all the inhabitants of the land, the inhabitants of Canaan, that's on your worksheet, show up at this time. And so the reason why all these inhabitants show up is they think, why is Egypt and all these soldiers coming up to Canaan? They think, are they coming up to take the land? Are they coming up to conquer? As they find out, that's not the case. So war doesn't break out there. When you read this, particular passage in verse 10. You can throw it up there again. I'm sorry. It says, and they came to the threshing floor of Atad. Now, um, in another Bible, it will say they came to Goren Hatad. And what that means, Goren means threshing floor. And Hatad means thorns. And that's on your worksheet. So this place was known as the threshing floor of thorns. And in those days, it was very common, the threshing floor, you know, was this round deal here, and it was very common to put thorns, brambles, big brambles, around the border of these threshing floors so the animals didn't get in there 
when the owners left. So it was a very common thing to do, and hence they get this name, the threshing floor of thorns. But there's also a teaching that this was a very prophetic look at what would one day happen in the land of Canaan. And that's what makes this threshing floor so interesting. Remember, when we talk about the threshing floor, we talk about separating and distinction, right? The wheat from the chaff, separation and distinction. And throughout the Old Testament, we find that thorns are biblically symbolic of sin and wicked people, that's on your worksheet, whose fate was to be threshed and destroyed. So here you have, at this threshing floor, Jacob, who would later be called Israel. So you have Israel, and then you have around these Canaanites, the Edomites, the, you know, Ishmaelites, you have these foreign inhabitants that live in this land around this threshing floor. And remember, the threshing floor was all about separation. So could it be that this was a picture of God's command that he gave to Moses in the book of Numbers about what was to happen to the people in the land when they got there? Remember what God said. It's in Numbers 33 and 53. God speaking to Moses. He says, And ye shall dispossess the inhabitants, the wicked people, the thorns of the land, and dwell therein. For I have given you the land to possess. The NIV says it this way. Take possession of the land. Get rid of. In other words, get rid of everybody else that's there. And settle in it, for I have given you the land to possess. So God is telling Moses, go into the land, the threshing floor, and separate out the thorns, the wicked people, and then settle in it. And then God gives them a warning in verse 53. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes, watch this, and thorns in your side. The threshing place of thorns. It's commonly taught that this was a prophetic look of what Israel was to do when they came into the land. They were to eradicate, to separate, to distinguish themselves as the inhabitants of the land and possess it. Otherwise, they would be thorns in their side. Let me give you one more. David, in 1 Chronicles 21, and Pastor touched on this a little bit Sunday. He's in Jerusalem. He's on Mount Moriah. And uh, David creates a grievous error. He numbers his armies. And as a result, God sent a terrible plague into the land. And realizing his error, David sought a place of repentance. And Gad, the prophet of God instructed David to go to the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite and build an altar up there. It says in 1 Chronicles 21 and 18, then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. 
this site where this threshing floor is the same place that Abraham went and sacrificed Isaac 800 years earlier. Now, Ornan, the Jebusite, if you read in the scripture, he's also called Aruna. He is the, what is thought of as the king of that area. And so David goes to this place, this threshing floor, where God has told him to build an altar and sacrifice unto him. And, you know, Aruna, or Ornan, the Jebusite, he says, well, go ahead. You can just have it and go, you know. And David says, no, I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to buy it from you. And so he buys it, right? He buys that threshing floor and the oxen, and then he does the sacrifice as commanded. But it was at that threshing floor where he builds that altar, which would years later become the exact spot of where Solomon's temple would stand. It was where the Ark of the Covenant would sit in that spot, that threshing floor, that place of separation, that place of distinction. It just all lines up. Um, Interestingly, I've got a short little rabbit trail here. In 2 Samuel 24, you don't have to go there, Peter. In 2 Samuel 24 and 24, it says David purchased that piece of land for 50 shekels. In 1 Chronicles 21 and 25, it says he purchased it for 600 shekels. And so a lot of people say, well, there's your contradiction in Scripture. Not really. The 50 shekels was for the threshing floor and the oxen. Okay, the 600 shekels were for all the land around it. Okay? That's the explanation for it. So, you can get into a conversation with a Muslim or a Palestinian that says that Jerusalem is theirs. God gave it to them. Muhammad was there. He got on trigger. He blew up into the air. And, and that was what gave them the land, right? But see, 1,400 years before that, there was a financial transaction that took place where the Jebusites sold it to the Hebrew people. Now, that's a financial, documented, written transaction. So you can't tell me. The Jews don't own Jerusalem, and they don't own that Mount Moriah, and they don't own the Temple Mount. David purchased it. That's a financial transaction. So you can put that in your bonnet and hold on to it for a while. You may need it someday. But that's where it is, right there. So let me get back to this. All through the Old Testament, the threshing floor is used as a tool of separation. It was an instrument of sifting the wheat from the chaff. So it's no surprise that Jesus employed this metaphor of a threshing floor when he began to warn Peter of the danger that was before him in our text. And so in the text that we read, I extracted three, what I think are three lessons in this text. Number one, lesson number one, this is so deep. On your worksheets, trials and tests are just a normal part of life. 
Luke 22 and 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. So, if you take some time and you dig into this a little deeper, and you go into the Greek language, the original Greek language, it gives you a more direct and profound interpretation of this verse. So, if you all have, whoever's got like their King James with them, if you look at that verse, I don't think it's up, I don't know if they put it on the overhead, but in your Bibles, you're going to see words that are in italics in that verse, okay? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have is italics. That's something that was added later, okay? That he may sift you, that's added later, the word you, as wheat. So when I see that, I always like to dig in and find out what's really going on here. And when you go back to the original Greek text, obviously Luke the physician wrote this gospel and wrote Acts, and he wrote it in Greek. And of course, we went from Greek to Latin to English. And so sometimes things are lost a little bit in the translation. And so when you go back to the Greek, what's interesting is what it actually translates to is Satan has asked and obtained by asking that he may sift you as wheat. That takes you back to Job, right? When Satan came to God and said, hey, how about Job? Can I mess with Job? God says, okay, you can't kill him, but yes, you can do that. It's the same exact idea. Another interesting thing in that verse is when you break it down, I'm going to turn to it here because I want to show this to you. You can study this out some other time. But it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. That first you, in the original Greek, it is the plural form of you. And then it says that he may sift you, singular. So what am I trying to say? I told you I was going to use you. <clears throat> so I can come to Bridget, and I can say, Honey, I love you. She loves that. <laughs> so the you is singular, right? Or... My brothers and sisters, I love you. The you is plural. So what some expositors say, and I got it, is he's, say, I'm Jesus, Simon standing here. He's saying, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you looking at the disciples, and then turns his attention back to Simon, and it becomes personal after that. That would make sense, right? Disciples went through it, didn't they? So study it out. 
but that's what the original Greek text is that he's actually addressing that. He's talking to Simon, and his focus is on Simon, but he looks at the disciples because it's a plural you that's used. You can look at it on your own. I thought it was fascinating. So do with it what you want. But it's interesting that this becomes not a future tense thing. This is, a, this is an event that's already happened. Satan has gone and asked for permission. What Jesus is saying, basically, is Satan has asked and obtained permission to take you to the threshing floor and to sift you as wheat. He believes that when the wind blows in your life, that when the harsh wind of the threshing floor assails you, that you will be blown off to the side like chaff. He is fixing on turning his attention upon you and proving that you are a failure and that you are a fake. So he has asked, he has begged, he has been granted the opportunity to place you on the threshing floor and loose the wind into your life. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say in verse 32, But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. Notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, I prayed that you will be spared from this threshing floor. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I have prayed that the wind wouldn't ravage your life. No, what he said was, I have prayed that when you're on the threshing floor and the wind of trial and tragedy tears at your soul, that your faith will not fail. I have prayed that when the wind blows fierce, that your faith in me will be enough to see you through. James 1 and 14 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. I think, I believe, that if you live for God for any length of time at all, you will find yourself in places and times where everything you are is challenged. And in a moment of weakness, you will be tempted to throw it all away and return back to the old life. Can I have some transparent amens? There are times in life that we face that. It is the threshing floor of life where the sifting takes place. And Jesus announces to Peter that he's headed for the threshing floor because Satan has desired to prove that Peter is just chaff. That his faith was as fra a fragile, weak thing and that would be blown away in the coming trial. But God, in his infinite wisdom, refused to shelter Peter from the wind of the threshing floor, knowing that the same wind that Satan believed would destroy him would instead, on your worksheet, establish Peter in his faith. And that leads me to the second lesson. What Satan views as a temptation on your worksheet, God views as a test. The threshing floor serves to illustrate the difference in the way that Satan and God view the same set of circumstances. So, I didn't put it on the overhead, but it's on your sheet, the fun little optical illusion that everyone has seen before Right? You have seen this before. Okay. Just making sure. Some see the old lady. 
Y'all have seen this before, right? Okay. Some see the old lady, and then some see the young lady, right? One picture, it's the same picture, but it's all in how you see it. When Satan view, what Satan views as temptation on your worksheet, God views as a test, and the difference is viewpoint. Satan, through the fire of temptation, strives to bring out the evil and carnality that is implicitly ingrained in our fleshly nature, while God, in the same set of circumstances, strives to establish us in our faith. On your worksheet, I, if there's anything I say tonight, I think this is the coolest thing. The same wind that blows away the chaff also reveals the wheat. The same wind that blows away the chaff also reveals the wheat. That's just so deep. Maybe it's just deep to me. If, if, if our viewpoint is such that when temptation comes, what we think might be temptation, and we view it as a test, that's a whole different outlook of when things come at us. Nope, I know this is a test. God, I'm standing on what I believe. I'm standing on my word. I'm walking away from that. I get it. It's a test. And then what do I do? I strengthen my faith. I can walk away from that. It's similar. I don't know if this is a good example, but it's, it's, it's kind of like the alcoholic. You know, you get sober, and they tell you, don't go into bars, you know, don't go to parties. But eventually, down the line, you're going to family get-togethers, and if you've got a family that's not in the church, they're going to have stuff flowing there. And it's, it's one of those things where you go, no, I'm standing on, I remember where I was at. God, I remember what you brought me through. Yeah. Satan may use it as a temptation. God says, it's a test to strengthen your faith. Does that make sense? To strengthen your faith. I think that's pretty good. All right. The same wind serves both, serve both purposes when it comes into your life. It blows away the chaff and it establishes the wheat. Satan desired to place Peter on the threshing floor because he believed that the wind would destroy Peter. But Jesus prayed that his faith would stand. Not that he would be spared the trial, but that he would emerge from the trial stronger than when he went in. Not that he would be spared the wind, but that the wind would serve to establish him in his faith. God doesn't hold back the storms or the trials and the temptations on your worksheet. Instead, he uses them to serve his eternal purpose. And it's a theme that is echoed throughout Scripture again and again and again. Out of terrible tragedy, there emerges tremendous triumph. Out of a seemingly horrible defeat, there arises incredible victory. God takes betrayal and turns it into blessing. He takes a debilitating sickness and renders it into an incredible healing. 
He takes death and turns it into a testimony. And what we need to recognize that God isn't afraid of the threshing floor because he is the master of the wind. He is the master of the wind. The same wind that serves to blow away chaff also serves to reveal the grain. The same wind that brings out the bad also serves to establish the good. The same wind that was intended to be a curse under the guidance of the master of the wind becomes a blessing. He works all things together for good. Amen? This is why James can say in James 1, and 2, and 3, and verse 12, My brethren, count it all joy. Oh, that's tough. Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. What he is saying is, don't be dismayed when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. It's an eternal truth that it rains on the just and the unjust. Amen? Satan may seek to destroy you, and winds may blow through your life that originate with evil intentions, but God alone is the master of the wind. And regardless of the intentions of hell, the wind serves him and him alone. This is why Peter could say in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. That's the attitude of someone who knows the wind may blow in my life, but if I stand firm in the faith, the glory of God will be revealed. Not in spite of the wind, but because of the wind. Because he is the master of the wind. Peter 1, 6 through 8 says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. We serve the master of the wind. It can blow in my life, but it won't destroy me. It can come screaming through everything that I hold dear. But if I stand my ground and I keep the faith, I'm going to outlast the wind. And that which was meant to destroy me will instead strengthen me. Isaiah 43 and 2 says, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. It didn't say if you walk through the fire. It said when you walk through the fire. When you walk through the fire, you have this simple process. It will be hot enough to refine you, but not hot enough to consume you. That's another good one. I a star near that. I should drop the mic. When you walk through the fire, you have that simple promise. It will be hot enough to refine you, but never hot enough to consume you. Hmm. 
That's why Job can say in the midst of his affliction, in Job 23 and 10, but he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. He knows where you are. He hasn't given up on you. He hasn't brushed you aside. He knows right where you are. And when he gets done, you're going to come forth as gold. Amen. Lesson number three, last one. The threshing floor isn't just for your benefit. <clears throat> Going back to our text, I'm going to reread the two verses. And the Lord said to Simon, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Just before this statement, Peter said he would follow the Lord to any length, even to his own death. The problem wasn't the fervency of Peter's desire to be a disciple and follower of Jesus. The problem was who he was leaning on to accomplish this task. Peter was all about Peter. Peter was all about Peter. In the most vital moment, when his faith mattered the most, Peter's faith in self would fail him, and he would deny the Lord three times before running into the darkness in tears and defeat. After he denied Jesus three times, and he's right there in the courtyard, and he denies him in such a vision, after everything he said before, and he takes off in darkness, just runs. And quite frankly, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, the disciples, they take off and run too. And, I, you know, the Bible doesn't say, I don't know what their mindset was, but here's our leader. They've come and arrested him. Got a pretty good idea of which way this is going to go. Are we following the right guy? You don't know. They ran. They ran, but they come back, and then it's at breakfast time when Jesus is making breakfast, and he pulls Peter over. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? There's that restoration. There's grace. There's mercy. He says when you are converted, when you come back, when you turn around, Okay? When you've learned something from this, when the winds have come across the threshing floor and they've sifted you, but they haven't crushed you, your faith is not a shipwreck, but you're coming back, I need you to strengthen the brethren. Did the disciples go through anything all through the book of Acts? Was there any persecution, things like that? And I wonder if it was Peter that said, don't give up. Don't give up. I know you had a tough day, but don't give up. We serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. Don't give up. I wonder if it was Peter that went around and strengthened the brethren. Jesus restores Peter to his leadership role. He goes on, when he goes on to say in this verse 32 that he has prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. I think that's interesting. 
It's not if you're converted, but when you're converted. When thou art converted, when you come through this, when you get on the other side of this threshing floor, strengthen your brethren. See, the threshing floor isn't just for your benefit. Pastor's gone through situations that I've never been through before, right? My wife's lived a certain situation I've never lived before. But I may live one of those situations, and I need that person to be able to strengthen me when I'm going through it. I'll go back again. Going in and sponsoring people in recovery, you know... <laughs> I've been through situations, they're just walking into it. They don't know how to handle it. They don't, they don't even know how they're going to get through tomorrow without a drink. But I've been through those trials. I've lived through that. See, it's through the wind blowing across the threshing floor and the trial you come through, that's the testimony. That's the testimony that speaks to the person that needs to hear it. It's not just for our benefit that we go through this stuff. Right? It's so that we strengthen the brethren, the sisters, the brethren, the sisters. Your testimony is going to be an encouragement to them. Use it to strengthen them. I close with this thought. The winds of trial will blow, and yes, the enemy will seek to sift you like wheat. But Satan is fighting a battle he already lost. The verdict was rendered at the cross. You are standing for a victory that has already been won. So when you come out on the other side of your trial, strengthen your brethren and use your trial. Use the sifting as a testimony to how awesome our God is. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God for this word of encouragement tonight. God, I ask that in the days ahead, as, as, as we know the winds are blowing now, God, we see it out there. God, I ask, Lord, that you would, God, strengthen us, help us to walk through those trials, help us to stand firm in the faith. And then, God, once we come through it, God, I pray that you would use it to bring you glory as we tell others what we've been through and how awesome you are that you stood by us and brought us through it. Bless each person here tonight. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. And the church says, amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Oh